It's Tuesday, July 27th, from The Recount and iHeartRadio. This is the News Items Podcast, bringing you analysis based on my newsletter, News Items. On Monday and Wednesdays, my co-hosts Rebecca Darst and I talk about the news. On Tuesdays and Thursdays, we bring you interviews with smart people who are knowledgeable in their fields of endeavor. Today, we have a conversation with Mark Tursik. He's the former CEO and president of the Nature Conservancy, the world's biggest environmental organization, a former partner at Goldman Sachs, and the author of Nature's Fortune, How Business and Society Thrive by Investing in Nature. Mark and I spoke about how and why he brought a business approach to environmentalism and what he learned about the all-important quest for carbon neutrality, including some surprising conclusions about China. Without further ado, here's my interview with Mark Tursik. Hello, Mark. Welcome to the podcast. It's great to be here, John. Thank you. Listeners are always interested in how you know people get from point A to point B. So let's start at the Harvard Business School. You graduate from the Harvard Business School and go to Goldman Sachs. So um, I was fortunate to get to go to Harvard Business School, which I loved. And then when I was there, I said, well, what will I do? And at that time, I, I graduated in 1984. Wall Street was a very different business. But I concluded that some of the uh, more interesting business opportunities for young people like me were there on Wall Street. I joined Goldman because it was a small firm, but it seemed to sort of suit me culturally, kind of a down-to-earth organization. The Most people there didn't have fancy personal backgrounds or anything. So Thereafter, it was one of those right place, right time kind of things. I kept my head down. I worked hard. The firm and Wall Street generally had such extraordinary growth. So I really had a very positive experience at Goldman. I know at Goldman Sachs later became controversial. Uh, I think some of that controversy is certainly fair. But for the bulk of my career, I worked at Goldman for 24 years. I think I worked for honorable people at the firm and with honorable clients. And I, I was really fortunate. I became a partner. Then I led the corporate finance effort. Then I led the new issue equity business we called uh, Equity Capital Markets. And I had a few more jobs like that. Then interestingly, I started to think it's time for me to do something different. And I came up with this idea that I'd become an environmentalist. I have to admit, it wasn't a really well-developed plan. <laughs> and most people at Goldman Sachs said I was a partner. And like partners rarely step down voluntarily like that. But I was prepared to do it. Most folks said, well, don't let the door hit you on the way out. But fortunately, <laughs> my boss... Hank Paulson, who knew much more about the environmental business than I did, he said, tell me a little more about your plan, and then said, he's a very direct man, this isn't a very well-developed idea, Mark. I have a better one. Stay here and build an environmental effort for Goldman Sachs. This was in mid-2005, or late 2005. Today, that's a common commonplace idea for a, a global financial institution to have an environmental effort. But back then, it wasn't. It was Hank's idea, not mine. It was a great idea. Our idea was we would require and help every unit of Goldman Sachs to have an environmental strategy that did two things. One, it would make money, and two, it would produce positive environmental outcomes, the so-called win-win. And it went quite well. It went so well that um, I then came up with the idea of, of moving on full-time into the environmental world. But I left Goldman Sachs um, in July 2008. So... Um, mm -hmm. The financial crisis wasn't fully <laughs> underway, but it was pretty close. But that was sort of interesting, too. A headhunter called me as the Goldman Sachs environmental person, definitely not to recruit me. They had no interest in recruiting me. Rather, they said, 
did I have any good ideas on who TNC might recruit to be their next CEO? TNC is the Nature Conservancy uh, for your listeners. Right. Uh, right. One of the world, the world's biggest environmental nonprofit and an organization I really admired. So I said, well, yes, I do have a candidate. I nominated myself. Everyone thought that was crazy. All my friends said, Mark, they're never going to hire a Wall Street banker. My friends who knew the environmental movement and the headhunters, you could kind of tell they, they were being polite. They kind of had to humor me. But then I did what I learned at Goldman Sachs. I really hustled and I learned everything I could learn about TNC. I made a strong case and lo and behold, I got the job. So it was really, um, I was very fortunate. Uh, that really changed my life. That was in, the, again, I joined in July, 2008. The Nature Conservancy in July, 2008. Yes. And then right after that, the financial crisis happened, which for us was a huge challenge. Um, but it, you know, it was one of those crises that we didn't waste. My background on Wall Street helped. We pivoted, we restructured rather dramatically to focus on our areas of strength. NGOs, nonprofits don't generally do that kind of restructuring. We did it. We did it well. So we downsized. But then in about a year, we had regrown to be bigger than we were prior to that downsizing because we were we were more focused on our strengths. And it was it was kind of a stressful period. But that's how I got started at TNC. And it was a great experience. I like to tell that story because I think more private sector people should consider transitioning into the nonprofit world and vice versa. I think that kind of boundary crossing is a way to accelerate progress as we think about the, some of the big challenges the world faces. Aside from the financial challenge of the post-great financial crisis crunch, I guess, what did you find when you got to the Nature Conservancy? Well, it was really upon arrival. I, I, I noted right away, uh, you know, and I knew the organization beforehand. We had 4,000 people about at that time, and they reminded me of Goldman Sachs people in many respects, very smart, very ambitious, entrepreneurial, deal makers, really. Although, in this case, deal makers for conservation and environmental outcomes. So um, the kind of initiatives that we pursued after I joined that I think I had a big hand in, although everything was a team effort, we, we did a lot of work with the private sector to accelerate environmental progress. Today, that, again, is rather common, but it wasn't as common then, and I think we did it well. We launched a so-called impact capital initiative we called NatureVest with the great support of J.P. Morgan, but that was a kind of internal investment bank that raised capital from investors, debt-like capital, to lever up our donor capital so that we could finance ourselves kind of like companies do. It was right out of the Corporate Finance 101 playbook. And that allowed us to do more, to do bigger things. Size matters when we think about environmental challenges. We also did a lot of things that had very little to do with investment banking, of course, classic conservation and environmental initiatives. Can you talk about how you navigated the rocky shoals of uh, the environmental community? I mean, I, I made lots of mistakes, but I tried to learn from them. There was nervousness right off the bat. Hey, why would a Wall Street person be running this big organization? And then the Nature Conservancy, different than many other great NGOs, I know them all well and admire them. TNC prided itself still to this day on, on being nonpartisan. So 50 state chapters, plenty of supporters from all political parties, friends on both sides of the aisle in Congress, et cetera. Uh, we, we worked with the private sector and we accelerated that while I was there. So all of that stuff raised questions. What I learned, like one project comes to mind. Early in my TNC career, we announced a big partnership with Dow Chemical. The idea would be, was that, and Andrew Liveris, the CEO at the time, was a great partner. He was all in on this. 
And our idea was that Dow could benefit from natural capital as well as green infrastructure, if you will, as well as, you know, old fashioned infrastructure. When we announced the project, there was an enormous amount of pushback. Like, why would you dare to work with this company with such a big environmental footprint and not always a good one? Of course, that was why we wanted to work with them to the extent we could improve their behavior, the outcomes would be better. But what we did, we, we, we learned that, well, first thing I would say about the critics, and this continued in my time at TNC, the critics were kind of on our, they wanted what we wanted. They were generally environmentalists. Most of the criticism came from the left. They wanted better environmental outcomes, just like we did. So we said, look, you're, you're, you're our friends. Our critics are our friends, they used to say. You want what we want. You've got a different perspective. Good. Here's what we'll do. We will disclose everything. And if you think we haven't disclosed enough, tell us. We will disclose it. And if you see something we're doing wrong, let us know, because it will be good to know. We don't want to unknowingly get things wrong. And so we tried not to be defensive. Transparency, I think, was really important. Sometimes, by the way, we did get things wrong, and our critics helped us. And that sort of reduced the incoming criticism and was replaced by a better dialogue with folks who you know, you might not agree with. And I think the environmental movement would benefit, would still benefit from more of that dialogue and less like vilification and, you know, kind of harsh criticism. That's probably true in all aspects of society. But in in the environmental world, I still think that's the case. Environmentalists, again, they're well-intentioned, they're smart, I respect them. But sometimes there's a, a hurry to criticize really harshly people with different perspectives. And I do think that sometimes gets in the way of progress. Tell us about the Dow project. It was the subject of a what I thought fair and, and really interesting profile of you in The New Yorker. But tell us a little bit about how that came to be and what you accomplished there. The idea was just, hey, guys, you know, got this sprawling enterprise. They knew they wanted to improve their environmental standing. They knew that would be good for them in all kinds of respects. Andrew Liveris, the CEO, and others at Dow had heard me and others at TNC talk about so-called natural capital. I wrote a book about natural capital, by the way, called Nature's Fortune. It's not like I invented the idea. It had been an academic concept, but it it seemed to me that we could make it more actionable. But if you think of nature as green infrastructure, it's an asset base that does so many important things. It, It obviously provides you clean water, clean air, a stable climate if we don't screw up, the soil that grows our food, protection from storms, a natural system that clean water and store water, et cetera. But because humankind everywhere in the world isn't used to thinking of nature that way. We tend to underinvest in that asset. We don't take care of that asset like we should. It remains a big challenge. So Andrew Liveris and his team said, hey, we probably could benefit from natural capital. So let's figure out where and when Dow could do so. So one of my going in ideas was they have this big plant in um, near Galveston. It's, it's one of the biggest manufacturing facilities of any kind in the world. And of course, sea level rise in storms even back then, were a threat. It's more of a threat today. So one of my ideas was, hey, why don't we restore the grasslands around that facility? They could provide robust protection from sea level rise and storms. It turns out in that case, you know, nature is complicated. It didn't really work. But we did learn at that same plant where they had water management issues to clean water, to deal with water that had become polluted, uh, they created a big wetland right in this in the middle of this huge facility. It looks like a park. There's all sorts of birds and animals there, but that nature-based approach saved them money and had a bunch of um, additional environmental co-benefits that were free. 
And it got people who work at Dow excited about additional opportunities to find these nature-based tools. And then they created the team, the Dow team and the TNC team created a kind of a toolkit and an analytical framework for op managers of all Dow facilities all around the world to then get to work. I think this is important. Like you can talk about these things in concept, but that doesn't change things. So they created a tool for managers to assess where might nature be a benefit? Will it really work? How do you figure out? How do you compare the cost of the green capital to the man-made capital, et cetera? Because you have to make these ideas actionable. You have to make it work for engineers. Dow has a lot of engineers. They don't want happy talk or the kind of BS that a person like me might do. They want to know what does it cost? Will it work? Where will the flaws be? How exactly does it compare to the man-made alternative? And so I think it was really a great project. It was, uh, it was one big step toward doing more work along those lines. In your role as the head of uh, the Nature Conservancy, you obviously dealt with a lot of different governments. How did you uh, deal with the United States government? We always were able to get a lot done at kind of the program and project level with Interior, with the Ag Department, et cetera. And from time to time, we had wins, uh, even legislative wins. But most of my time at TNC wasn't a great period for environmental progress out of Capitol Hill. You know, the Obama administration, you know, they were able to do some things, but really most of their wins were executive orders that were turned around. Under the Trump administration, there was even less progress, obviously, uh, from my perspective. But TNC continues to prioritize that. And I think under the Biden administration, TNC's way of doing business probably has a very good chance for a lot of impact. All right, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back with an interview with Mark Tursik. Welcome back to News Items. I'm here with Mark Tursik, who served as CEO of the Nature Conservancy between 2008 and 2019. Mark, I just had one question about China. Aside from your partners there, was it difficult dealing with the government? You know, it's always puzzled me a little bit. To be frank, felt to me like my ideas got a better hearing from senior officials in the Chinese government than in the in the U.S. government. To China's China's a complicated place, and I'm not. I'm not in a position to address all of those challenges. But when it came to how to make environmental progress, first, the country is, is led by leaders who, who mostly have engineering or science educations. Mm -hmm. So they, they understand these issues very, very well. And they're interested, again, in solutions that work and will work at scale. And my impression always was that the Chinese officials listened intently, welcomed the input. It was encouraging. And when it comes to executing, making that all happen in China, it gets complicated because the people in charge of the overall government aren't in charge of every aspect of what's happening across the economy. They still have a lot of poor people. They have a lot of coal. So they're trying to balance a whole bunch of countervailing initiatives. But, you know, they announced their countrywide cap and trade program. It's very much like the program we tried to pass in 2008, the Waxman-Markey bill. China has one. We don't. It doesn't represent the whole economy, but it's a pretty impressive step in the right direction, I think. And that reflected a lot of international input from people like TNC and other great NGOs, as well as obviously Chinese-based experts. So China, I wouldn't call them a villain environmentally. I think they're trying to balance a whole host of initiatives, but trying to make progress. They're very much in harm's way, more than the U.S., in terms of 
their vulnerability to challenges that arise from climate change, water issues, pollution issues, et cetera. So they're on it. And my guess is they will be a leader over the period ahead. You know, people read about a carbon market. Can you tell us how that works? The idea is, you know, one reason we overuse fossil fuels or one reason fossil fuels seem to be so inexpensive is we don't charge fossil fuel users the full cost. You know, economists call these externalities. So one way to regulate fossil fuels is to simply directly regulate them or alternatively to quote a price on carbon. So if you imagine we had a very high tax on carbon in the U.S. that would make renewable energy more cost competitive. It would encourage people to use less fossil fuels, etc. It's very hard to do it, it seems to me, in a country like the U.S. because people don't want their cost of energy to go up. Whenever gasoline prices go up, it's a political challenge. And even though the theory is elegant, these carbon taxes would have to be very high for all the change we want to have. So um, I used to think this was the best way to go. I've, I've changed my mind. I don't see that, you know, President Biden today has very ambitious climate goals, but he ran for office saying he wouldn't raise taxes on people who made less than $400,000 a year. So he can't really, this tool is not available to him. Instead, you can do it through a so-called cap and trade program. The idea is it's very complex for federal government to determine the lowest cost or optimal way to reduce carbon use. So let's turn it over to the market. I think it's pragmatic. It probably is a little bit more costly, but I think it's politically much more viable and I think it will work better. Now, China's going to, ironically, China, a country led by the Communist Party, they're ahead of us with this market-based approach. So the world is full of ironies. We'll see how the Chinese thing goes. I mean, we don't really know the outcomes yet. You took over the Nature Conservancy in 2008. It's 2021 today. How do you view the climate crisis differently now than you did when you took over the the Nature Conservancy? Yeah, it's one of those good news, bad news questions. The Paris Climate Accord, everybody that was in Paris in, I think, December 2015, I was there. Thanks really to President Obama, President Xi, the Pope, uh, uh, lots of players, the whole world came together and agreed on an ambitious set of climate goals. The problem, though, is we're way, way, way behind schedule in making the progress royal we, that environmentalist, but really the global community got behind. The UN does a study every year of how we're doing. In 2020, I think the world had about 52 gigatons of carbon dioxide equivalent emissions. Our current trajectory, according to the UN, by 2030 is will be like from 52 to 59. So that's bad. That's the wrong direction. They're going up. They're supposed to go down. To be within the two-degree target, although people think even that's not ambitious enough, emissions would need to be down to around 41 gigatons by 2030. So we are behind schedule. That's one measure of the challenge. I think we also see the politics are harder than we thought. Remember President Macron in France tried to introduce a small carbon tax and the Yellow Jackets took to the streets. And you know President Biden's trying to do the right thing, but it's tough. So the politics, the political will to do everything we need to do is harder. So there's a lot of bad news. On the other hand, there's good news. This is what I do today. I work with the private sector. I've been preaching for 20 years that for business leaders going after climate or other environmental challenges will be good for your business and will be good for the world. There's every reason to do it. And you know, over the last 20 years, there was some progress, but suddenly the world really gets it. And I think it's quite important because the private sector can do what we need. 
even though I just cited these gloomy statistics, we can turn that around and make a lot of progress between now and 2030. The progress we need to make between now and 2030 can mostly be done with proven technologies. We don't have to invent stuff. Between 2030 and 2050, we'll need a lot of innovation. I think that will require government R&D support. It will likely require better and tougher regulations than we have today. It will require also better international cooperation. And then it will require another set of innovation. But on the innovation to come, to me, it's it's just mind-blowing to see how much money is flowing to venture capital right now, all these exciting startups to solve these big problems. So I'm not saying the business world can do everything. It's not all we need. We need a stronger government. We need great environmental NGOs. We need citizens to be engaged. We need to be inclusive and make sure indigenous communities around the world are involved. We need to be concerned with environmental justice. But again, the private sector can move fast, think big, innovate, raise capital, use technology. We saw this in connection with COVID. I mean, the COVID story, and John, your newsletter always talks about the COVID ups and downs. It's a, you know, it's a pretty discouraging story, right? But one good thing happened is we came up with vaccines that seemed to work. I know the credit can be shared broadly, but to some large degree, my view is the private sector did that. And I think we need to see more of that kind of private sector problem solving. And I'm pretty optimistic that we're going to see that. For a long time, I think the issue of climate has been sort of theoretical, given what's happened this year. Do you get the sense that it's a much more tactile now that people might actually vote on it? You know, I wish I could be more positive about that. But it's true right now we face all these natural disasters. You'd think they would get people's attention. But remember, uh, we had Hurricane Katrina or Hurricane Sandy in New York City. It just seems that humans are pretty good at, I don't know, somehow compartmentalizing this type of bad news. So I don't think we can count on those kinds of bad outcomes, today's fires, today's floods, droughts, changing the electorate. If you look at polling, at first glance, it shows great support by the electorate for environmental priorities, especially climate. But if you rather in the polling ask the voter to rank his or her issues of concern, the environment um, falls down. So it's just a tough challenge. And so it requires really deft political leadership, but it requires leadership as well by the environmental community, NGOs, business leaders, et cetera. This isn't easy. That's why I thought it was really great back at the Paris climate when the Pope spoke up. I thought he was very moving. You know, no matter what your religious standing is, the Pope's a pretty important guy. And he was really very articulate and moving on the need to address climate. And I think we need more uh, leadership along those lines. Um, I don't really mean to criticize present leaders. It's hard. This, none of this is easy. So solving, addressing climate change is very likely the hardest thing humans have ever tried to do, in my judgment. We need most of the world. It's easy to be a free rider. It's easy if you want to demagogue against it. The changes required are huge. Let's face it, low-cost fossil fuel is what generated this extraordinary economic boom that benefited humankind over the last extended period of time. So this is a tough one to solve, but we have no choice. So you just have to, um, I think there, I therefore prefer less ideological talk and more pragmatic problem solving. I think that builds some momentum and confidence that we can do this. 
Uh, it wouldn't be news items uh, if we didn't ask it. Sort of a doom question: How alarming is uh, what's happened recently in regards to where the climate's going? I think people should be very alarmed. These heat waves, these floods, taking people's lives. There's no reason to think they won't continue and won't get worse. Sea level rise and storms. We probably have some time before that's the crisis we're most concerned about, although we wouldn't feel that way if we lived in Bangladesh. Right. Uh, refugee pressures will arise. There's a lot to worry about. Now, we don't want to overemphasize that because then the electorate citizens might just think, well, there's nothing that can be done. That's not true. There's a lot that can be done. Delay, though, is very dangerous. And the, the outcomes will be really very you know, we're going to look back and really regret that we didn't move faster, I'm afraid. But we can start moving faster now. One last thing. How do people follow you? What Do you have a website? Do you have a newsletter? Well, thank you for asking. I have a website, markchersick.com, and I have a newsletter, The Instigator. It's on Substack, and you can find a link also on my webpage. I try to write about these exact topics in a straightforward, pragmatic, easy to understand, and perhaps even cautiously optimistic way. All right, that's it. Mark, thank you very, very much for joining us. Thank you, John. I enjoyed this conversation. I love your newsletter. Really great to catch up. Thanks for tuning in to News Items. The podcast is produced by Christian Castro-Russell, Pierre Bienname, Ali Rogers, and Megan Burney. Our theme music was composed by Billy Libby. Our recording engineer is the great Simran Singh, And we'd like to thank the whole team here at Factory Underground, where we record the podcast. I'll be back tomorrow with my co-host, Rebecca Darst, to talk about the news. We'll see you then. Mm -hmm.